and let's go. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Guide to Existence. Today we are going deep into the Parsha of the week. The Parsha is Chaye Sarah. The life of Sarah, the wife of Avraham, passes away in this week's Parsha. So the Parsha actually begins at the burial of Sarah. It's very apropos to the experiences that Mike and I are together experiencing this week, having gone to a funeral and having lost a, a, a parent. That's literally what this week's Torah portion is about. And what's so interesting about it is that the Parsha is about the death of Sarah, and yet it's called the life of Sarah. Okay? So let's try to remember. We're going to ask a lot of questions. Let's try to remember all of them. That's question number one. Okay, question number two. The Parsha begins that Avraham is giving a, um, it says that Avraham is giving a, I have to remember how to say this in English. I don't remember the word for it, a eulogy. He's giving a eulogy for Sarah and he's crying for her. And then he goes into a long, long conversation, really annoyingly long where he's bargaining with a Hittite, which is a nation that lives in the land of Israel, to buy a field in which to bury his wife in the cave in that field. Okay, And there is a very long discussion. The name of the field is Sede Ephron. It's the field of Ephron. That's the name of the guy who owns the field, which is in a place called Kiryas Arba, which is the neighborhood of the four still exists and the the city in that field is called Hebron or in that area is called Hebron which uh, is still a place in Israel it's in the Palestinian territories and on the in the West Bank um, and in that field in Hebron which is in the neighborhood of Kiryas Arba is the cave called Maris Hamachpela which means the double cave and in that cave is buried where Avram buried Sarah. And we'll see that there are other famous uh, people buried there, including all of the forefathers and three of the four mothers. Got that? Three of the four mothers. We have three forefathers and four foremothers, but three of them are buried in the cave. And that cave today is a mosque in Hebron. You go there, there are Israeli soldiers that are guarding the area because it's very not safe. It is an Arab city. And you literally, part of the area is reserved for Jews to pray in. But the that's where Avraham and Sarah and Yaakov and Rachel, Jacob and, Ra and Rachel are buried. I'm sorry, Yaakov and Leah. Jacob and Leah, Rachel, Rachel is buried in Bethlehem, Beth Lechem, which is another town uh, outside of Jerusalem. So um, Yitzchak, Isaac, and Rivka are buried in another part of the building, which is where the mosque is. So twice a year, Jews are allowed to go into that mosque to pray. It is an amazing experience. For those of you who didn't hear, we did mention this once before, I think last week that a mosque is kosher for a Jew to pray in. A mosque is a kosher house of worship to God because the Muslims believe in the same God that we believe in. Very interesting, right? So the, that's, that's what's happening at the beginning of the Parsha. We are buying the cave. 
And from the buying of the cave, we learn out the laws of marriage. How does marriage take place according to Judaism, according to the Torah? How do you marry someone? Does anyone know how to get married? There are four things needed to get married. They all, they all actually on their own make a marriage, but we do all four at a kosher wedding, at a Jewish wedding. What's one thing that everyone maybe have no, has noticed at a Jewish wedding? Or uh, some things that at any wedding that you probably noticed. Great, great point. Breaking of the glass is a custom in memory of the destruction of the temple, that our, that our joy is not complete. But that is a good guess. What else? Ketubah, great. A marriage contract. That is one of the things required for a Jewish marriage is a contract. In Hebrew, it's called a shtar. What else? Rings. Excellent. A Jewish kosher marriage is not rings. It is ring. The man has to give something of monetary value to the woman. That's why a double ring ceremony is problematic according to Jewish law because the woman does not have to give anything to the man. The man is, has to give something to the woman and it doesn't have to be a ring. But the whole world gets married with a ring because of us. The whole world. Because the Torah says specifically that you have to get married by giving money to or something of monetary value to the bride. And that has symbolically been typically a ring because a ring symbolizes the circle of life and many other symbolic things that have to do with a ring. There are some Hasidic groups that actually use a square ring. Wait, Mike. Sorry, Mike. You got muted. Yes, you could use three sheep, um, I think, pretty sure. Um, so actually, my my wife, when she was a kid, was in was visiting Israel with her family, and some some Arabs or Bedouins saw her sister, who was I guess twelve at the time, and they offered my father-in-law about a hundred camels in return for her. <laughs> I think that he he really had the better deal. He should have said yes. <laughs> but <laughs> don't tell my sister-in-law I said that. Hope she's not listening to this. Okay, so um, let's continue. Um, so there's one more, two more things that are needed to make a Jewish wedding. So what's something very visible that you notice as soon as you arrive at a Jewish wedding? Yeah? Chuppah, wedding canopy, that is number four. And that one is not biblical, but it is, it, it is an, or it's not a, necessarily biblical, but that is an, a, another thing that we do, which symbolizes the home, that you're literally taking the bride into your, under your wings. On the, the man is supposed to own the chuppah, and he's taking the bride into his um, tent. That's what it symbolizes, or underneath his wings, underneath the the embrace of his protection. 
That's what the chuppah symbolizes. And of course, there's a lot more symbol symbolism there of Hashem surrounding us and many other Kabbalistic things. But that's just a simple explanation. And there's one more, which is uh, the Mishnah says that an Isha Nichnas, a woman is, uh, a marriage is acquired, uh, takes effect for a woman with kesef, with money, or the value of money, something that's valuable. Star, a contract, and bia, which means uh, intimate relations. So that actually could make a marriage. Okay? And and chuppah is a, th a fourth thing that's added in the Gemara. So how do we learn out these things? So each one is learned separately from different sources. But the way that we learn that uh, a marriage takes effect with money is actually from this week's Torah portion. And uh, it's very, it's like the most unromantic thing you'll ever learn. We learn out the laws of marriage that a woman has to be acquired, acquired, and I'll explain to you what that means in a second, with money from Abraham buying a burial cave to bury his wife in. So essentially we see the connection between marriage and death. <laughs> so that is uh, very anti-romantic. So we need to understand the connection between burial caves and marriage, okay? And the way we learn it is that there's a word that's used in the acquisition of the cave, which is kicha, which means to take. And that same word is, appears in marriage. It says um, when a man takes a bride. And so we say that just like in the this week's Parsha, taking, it means take the money. So too there, it means that the marriage takes place with money. That's something called a Gezer Shava, which is a one of the ways that the Torah is, is learned. It's one of the principles of understanding the Torah, which is basically like a hyperlink. When there's one word, that word brings you with a hyperlink to another word that's the same word elsewhere in the Torah and teaches you a similar law as the first place that that word appears. So um, let me just say a word which is not related to our discussion tonight, but just a word about what marriage is. Okay, to some degree. Why is it that the man has to give money to the woman? What's actually happening? Why is he giving her a ring? Or a sheep? Troved. But, but why money? Money? It's not a dowry. A dowry is something that the bride actually brings into the marriage. But why does the groom... Yeah. What? Yes, it is an exchange. The, the language of the Mishnah is actually that an, a woman is acquired. It's almost like he's buying her, but he's not buying her. Don't get nervous. Don't get nervous. He is not buying her. And I'm going to explain to you because he's not, a man does not own a woman, right? She's free. He's buying something very specific when the Mishnah explains. It says, the Mishnah continues, a woman is acquired through money, through contract, or through intimacy, and she acquires herself through a get, which is a divorce contract, or the death of the husband. So now I want to share with you a deep idea. So what does it mean she acquires herself? 
So Rashi explains on, on the source, in the Tal- on the spot, in the Talmud, Rashi, the commentary who explains the Talmud says, she acquires herself with the, when the husband dies or when he divorces her. What's herself? Rashi says, her ability to choose who to marry. So it's very simple. What is the husband buying? He's buying her right to marry everyone else in the world. That's what he's buying from her. And Rashi teaches us something very profound. He says she buys herself back through divorce or through the death of the husband. Rashi says, what's herself? The ability to choose to marry someone else. So from that, we learn something very profound. What is yourself? What is your essence? Who are you? I want to welcome my father for joining us. And uh, hopefully he'll enjoy. What is yourself? What is your essence? Your essence is your ability to choose. That is your essence. That's the only thing that's yours. Really, most of our things that happen to us in our life have nothing to do with us. We don't really choose what job we have. We don't choose any of our talents, really. We don't choose how tall we are, how healthy we are how strong we are, how rich we are, how poor we are. Even what job we get, we think we choose, but really it's a whole combination of factors that push us in the direction that we go in life. Most things happen to us. And according to the Talmud, everything is from the hands of heaven, except for one thing, our moral choices. Our ability to choose to do the right thing is 100% ours. And that's what the mission is telling us, is our ability to choose, that's our essence. So the husband is buying the wife's right to choose to marry anyone else in the world. And she's giving over those rights to the husband. Why doesn't it go the other way around? So there's many reasons that we can discuss. The man in Kabbalah is the giver. He has to, his job in the marriage is saying, I'm going to give to you. The woman receives. So he has to be the one to initiate this transaction by giving. But there's more to it. That um, according biblically, and I don't want to open up a whole can of worms here, but biblically, a man can marry multiple wives. Polygamy is permitted according to the Torah. We don't do it. We haven't done it for the past 2,000 years. At least Ashkenazim haven't done it. Some Sephardi communities did continue to do it until the state of Israel was founded. But uh, and they some uh, some Mormons do it in in Utah. But uh, we uh, we stopped doing it about 2,000 years ago. But biblically, it's permitted. And you might ask, well, that's not fair. Why is it permitted for men to have multiple wives, but women aren't permitted to have multiple husbands? So first of all, once you're married, you'll, you won't ask that question anymore because marriage is not easy. So having more than one is even harder. But the answer is very simple without having to get into the Kabbalah and the philosophy of it. It's just very simple. If a woman had multiple husbands, what would be impossible to determine? who the father is so therefore a man can give to multiple places but a woman can only receive from one place a hundred percent and that is a a big a big foundation in 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 marriage but we're not going to get into that any further if it bothers you please reach out and we can explore okay so but let's go back to our question first question is why is the partial called the life of sarah when it only talks about her death second of all is why do we go into such detail about buying land in Israel to bury Sarah? And then how can we learn the laws of marriage from the acquisition of a burial cave? 
very anti-romantic. So in this week's Parsha, after Sarah passes away, then Avraham turns to his servant, Eliezer, and he says, I want you to go find a wife for my son, Yitzchak. Now, why suddenly is Yitzchak, is it time to get Yitzchak married? Why is it happening now? So the Talmud explains that in last week's Parsha, there was the story of the Akedah, which is the binding of Yitzchak. Abraham was told to slaughter his son, Jacob, and uh, Yitzchak, Isaac, and he ends up not having to do that, but it was a certain test of how much he's willing to give up for God. And immediately after that, Sarah passes away. And the sources explain that when she heard about the story that her son almost was slaughtered, she couldn't contain herself and she died. Her soul left her body. There's different explanations of that. And then immediately after that, Avram says it's time to get Yitzhak married. So we have to understand why. It's interesting to point out that right after the story of the binding of Yitzhak, it says that Rivka was born. Rivka, who ends up being the wife of Yitzhak, was born immediately after the story of the binding of Isaac. Why was she born just then? What is the connection to that story? Okay? So guys, pay attention to all the questions. Just hold tight. We're going to try to answer a lot of them. Now, this week's Parsha is known to be the Parsha of soulmates. Do you guys know that? Did we talk about this before? This week's Parsha, Chai Sarah, there is usually a pilgrimage of thousands or hundreds of single girls who go to pray at the cave in Hebron, the Maras HaMachpela, the, the, the cave where... Avram and Sarah and the other forefathers or three forefathers and three foremothers are buried um, because this week's Parsha is the Parsha that talks about soulmates. So it is a time that people go to pray specifically to get married. Okay. And we want to really understand what is the whole idea of a soulmate? What is marriage really all about? So we learn the laws of marriage in this week's Parsha, but not only that, we, we encounter the first marriage. In the Torah. Well, not exactly the first, but let's let's see. So now I want to show you a little bit inside the text because there's a couple of anom anomalies that we're going to have to understand. So Avraham turns to Eliezer, his servant, and he says, please place your hand under my thigh and swear to me that you will not take a wife for my son from the da daughters of the, Can the Can Canaanites amongst whom I live. Rather, you must go to my land, to my birthplace, and take a wife for my son there. So this is really, really weird. Just pay attention to what happens. He says to his servant, Eliezer, take your hand and put it under my thigh. And the commentaries explain that he didn't, mean under his thigh he meant a euphemism for something else okay Are you guys with me um sure yes he asks him to take hold of his masculinity and to make an oath and the commentaries point out because there were no other mitzvahs at the time. That was the first mitzvah. 
you were right. That was the first mitzvah that Abraham had. And so he, like, you know, that's customary to swear on a Bible or on a holy object. So he literally had him hold his place of his circumcision and swear. But my friends, that is really awkward. All right. We got to, there's got to be more to it. I mean, maybe there's not more to it, but I think there is more to it. Okay. So Eliezer swears and then Eliezer goes and uh, let me continue and explain to you what Avram says to him. He says, don't take my son there. You're not permitted to take Isaac outside the land of Israel. Isaac never left the borders of the land of Israel. He was born in Israel and he stayed in Israel his whole life. Whereas Abraham is constantly going back and forth across countries and borders. And he says, I will give... Uh, he says, if the woman doesn't ref doesn't want to come with you back to Israel, so then you're absolved of this oath. But whatever you do, don't take Isaac there. So he basically made him swear two things. One is that Isaac can't marry one of the locals. And two is that if the girl from Haran, which is in Syria, refuses to come back to Israel, then Eliezer is absolved from the oath. And then he says something very interesting. He says... When he makes him swear, he says, I'll make you swear by God, the God of the heavens and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of Canaan. And Rashi points out something very interesting. That previously in the Torah, uh, actually, we're going to see it a little bit later, that, that Eliezer is going to, is going to meet. He, so Eliezer arrives in, Syria, in Haran, and he goes to the well, and he says a prayer, and he prays that if a girl will come and say, and he'll say to her, please let me drink from your pitcher, and she says, drink, and I'll also give your camels to drink, then she's the one from my master, since she per per performs kindness. And I will know that through you, you have acted kindly with my master. He says to God, he says that following prayer. And just when he finishes the prayer, this girl comes out with a pitcher on her shoulder or on her head. And she fills it up. And then he says, and, and then um, he says, can I have a little sip from your pitcher? And she says, drink, sir. And then. She's, when he finished drinking, she said, and I will also get water for your camels. And he had a lot of camels. I think he had, I think he had 10 camels, I believe, or more than that. And she literally starts running back and forth and watering all these camels. And you know how much water camels drink. It's like intense labor. Okay. And then he says, she's the one. Okay. And he gets very excited and he takes out very fancy gold nose ring. Yes, Jewish women wore nose rings back then. And gives her a nose ring and a bunch of bracelets. And he says, tell me, who is your father? And she says, my father, is. I'm the daughter of Basul, the son of Milka and Nachar. And that is Avraham's brother. So he was right. He found the right girl. And he says, 
Hashem has done chesed ve'emes, kindness and truth for my master. Hashem led me on the path to my master's brother. So then they go inside and he tells the whole story to, um, to Avraham's relatives. And it's interesting. He tells the story as follows. Let me see if I can find it here. One second. There's one thing I'm looking for. I think I missed it at the beginning. Here we go. Here we go. So. When Avram was having Eliezer swear. I jumped the gun. Let's go back to the oath. He says. God of the heavens and God of the earth. Do not take my. Take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. For my son. And then he says. But be insistent not to take my son back there. God of the heavens who took me from my father's house in Haran and from the land of ur and from Iraq and from Syria, where I was born, who spoke to me about and swore to me, saying, I will give you this land to your descendants. He will send an angel ahead of you and, he will, and, and you will take a wife for my son from there. The commentaries point out that there's a difference, there's a discrepancy in the way Avram talks about God, in, literally in these two oaths. The first place he says, God of the heavens and God of the earth. The second place, he says, back in the day when I was living in Syria and I'm living in Iraq, God of the heavens spoke to me. And Rashi points out that before Avraham, there was God of the heavens. People knew there was a God. God was in the heavens. After Avraham, it was God of the heavens and God of the earth. That Avraham made known through the unique spiritual path that Avraham brought to the world that God exists in the world, not just in the heavens. And this is the primary theme of what's so unique about Judaism, is that it enables you to connect to God, not just in the heavens, not just through spirituality, but also in the earth, through physicality, through life, through everyday life. So that's a very important point, okay? So that's, then Eliezer goes and he does this whole, this whole prayer, and Rivka comes out. How did he know that she's the right one? He didn't even know what family she was from. He says, anyone who waters my camels, she's the one. How did he know that that makes her the right one for his, for his master, for Yitzchak? So let's understand a little bit of the symbolism going on here. Why does Avram make Eliezer hold on to his bris? So what's the, what's the unique message of bris? We've talked about this the past few weeks. Is that? Yeah, it's a covenant. It's a pact. Yeah, between us and God. Excellent. So the bris, the relationship between us and God takes place in... Why on that particular part of the body? Oh, it's a... So it ties back to the first mitzvah of being fruitful and multiply. It is a part of the body that symbolizes procreation, eternality, 
the passing on to the generations. So the bris is not only with Avram, but it's with all his descendants. That's the place where descendants are made, right? That's the place where you pass on your legacy. But there's more, more than that. On a second level, that is the most physical part of the body. And Hashem says, I want to make a relationship with you, not in the spiritual, not through meditating. Couldn't be, shouldn't we make our bris our symbol of our relationship with God? Shouldn't we put it on our ear, on our nose, on our heart, something more visible? We should wear a ring or a necklace or a hat. Why are we putting our symbol of our relationship with God in a very private place? And the answer is because that place represents the most physical part of the body. And God is saying, I want to have my relationship with you in the physical. And then the last answer, what? Well, yeah, it's hidden. So yeah, it could be there's a, there's an aspect of it that's supposed to be hidden. But the last the last explanation that we're going to give now is that the bris symbolizes the process of procreation, which is, you guys tell me, what is the most godlike thing a human being can ever do? I always ask you this, and you always say the answer, Jillian. Or Julia. Julia, you want to say it since you're unmuted? What's the most godlike thing a human being can do? All right, Jaylene. Great. To have children is the most godlike thing you could do. You're bringing a soul into the world and you're literally, you're creating life. But what is life? Remember, what's the definition of life? Body and soul, right? Life is when bodies and souls come together. That's life. That's what makes us alive. When bodies and souls dis disconnect, what's that called? Death, right? So the bris represents the coming together of spirituality and physicality. It's bringing God into the physical because that's literally what happens when, when, when we're created. That's what God did is he took a soul, which is a spark of God, and put it into a body, which is a piece of dirt. So Avram is specifically having him swear on the bris because the bris represents marriage. It represents the coming together of male and female, body and soul. The male in Kabbalah represents the soul. The female represents the body because that's what happens in procreation is the male takes a spark and gives it to the female. The female holds on to it and creates life, right? So that spark that the male is giving is a piece of soul. It's coming down in the act. That's why... Um, a, a man is is forbidden to spill seed in vain. That is a big deal in, in Judaism and in Kabbalah specifically is one of the worst things that a person can do, not because it's a sin, but because what's happening is a soul is coming into the world. And if that soul comes into the world without a body to receive it, so it becomes what a, a, a negative spiritual force. And that's where demons are created. We have a concept in Judaism called shadim, which are negative spiritual forces. They're literally like demons that are invisible for the most part to human beings, but they uh, they are everywhere in the world. And the Talmud explains different things that they do, and they they they're literally souls without bodies because they're created from th this act of men bringing souls into the world without a female to receive that that spirituality so the before avram people meditated on god but they didn't do anything with it 
So literally, the bris, Rashi says, is the first object of mitzvah. Because that's literally what Avram brought into the world, is the idea that objects can become mitzvahs. That physical objects can actually take on incredible spirituality. And that's that's the unique thing that began at Avraham. So the Talmud, expla- the Talmud explains that the desire that God had in creating the world is to bring himself into the world, to build a dwelling place down below, to build a home in the physical. And according to Kabbalah, the bris represents the connection between heaven and earth. So what is a soulmate? Okay, so let's examine the idea of marriage from the first, the first couple in the Torah. Who's the first couple in the Torah? Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava. First couple. So you might have heard me say this before, and I'll say it again. Um, Adam and Eve, how were they created according to the Torah? Everyone knows the story. Right? Depends who you ask. God formed Adam and then put Adam to sleep and removed his rib and created Eve from the rib. Right? But according to the Talmud, that's not correct. According to the Talmud, actually, and if you read the Torah carefully in in Hebrew, (laughs) and not Adam and Steve, um, if you read the Torah carefully, uh, it was actually Adam and Eve were created. Adam himself was created male and female. That Adam was actually both genders in one. And the separation of Eve from Adam was actually a breaking apart of Adam and Eve, who were one to begin with. So. The question that we have to ask is if Adam and Eve are, right, were one, then God separated them. And then he says, Adam, you have to go back and connect yourself to your wife and become as one flesh. So what's the obvious question? Why what? Right. If the goal is to come back together, why separate them? Right. Just let them stay as one. Or if the goal is that they should come together, then why start them off as one? Make them created separate. So the answer, and there are many, many levels to this, but simply put, the goal is that we, sh- we start out as one. The soul is one composite made up of male and female, a completion. And then we are ripped apart and thrown into this world of suffering and pain and separation. That's what this is. Not to say that there's not incredible pleasure and beauty and joy in this world, but this world is a world of disconnection. We are, when we are in our mother's womb, we are surrounded by love and connection and warmth. We have no needs. The Talmud says that an angel teaches us in the womb the entire Torah, our entire purpose in life. We are blissing out on spiritual connection. And then the moment we're born, we taste coldness, isolation, hunger, loneliness. And we, the first thing we do when we're born, what's the very first thing we do? And then we have to go back to our mother. I think we mentioned this once last year. It actually blew my mind. 
that you can't experience the closeness of the child to the mother when the child's in the mother's stomach. He's not experiencing closeness to the mother. He is the mother. He's part of the mother. In order to experience that intimate connection, you have to be separate and then come back together. So the baby cries and then is placed on the mother and hopefully begins to nurse and experiences that reconnection, that longing to be one again. We were all born one. We started our lives in the womb, one with our mothers. We started our spiritual life as souls, one with our other half. And then we come into this world and we become disconnected and separate. And we're longing, everyone is longing to find their other half, longing for completion and wholeness, longing for intimacy. That is from A to Z, the purpose of life. We're all, all of us searching for that completion and that connection. And we search for it all throughout our lives, through accomplishments, through physical pleasures, through all sorts of experiences. but. Ultimately, the true experience is found through true committed relationships and spiritual connection to get back to our true source, which is connection to God. But in marriage is the greatest experience that we have of that relationship in this world. A mother and a, ch and a child, a father and a child is an incredible experience of that, but they never connect in the fullest way. But through a spouse, two spouses coming together, that is really as equals, that is the true experience of coming back together with the other half. Okay, a beautiful idea. You guys like that idea? Ready to get married? Let's go. All right. So, so that's the message of, of marriage. And in, in reality, this is the experience that we all go through, the process of creation. Hashem was one, absolute oneness. And that's an experience of what a friend of mine refers to as unity. Unity is oneness without parts. Then Hashem took himself literally and split himself into a physical world. God put himself into a world of multiplicity, a world of separation, of disconnection. That is called disparity. And then the goal is that we should come back together, not as one but as two becoming one. And that's called harmony. See, there's two ways to sing. If you sing in unity, unison, we're all playing that different notes, right? Oh, same note. If we sing in unison, unison, we're all singing the same note. But if we sing in harmony, we're all singing different notes. Which one is a better expression of oneness? Unity or harmony? What's more beautiful? Harmony. Harmony is it's the greatest expression of oneness. So when if all there is is God, if all there is is oneness, it's much there's no one experiencing that oneness. God wanted us to experience connection to him. In order to do that, he has to create us separate from him and then enable us to come back to him. But as a, an another. So it's the exact same process. Adam and Eve were one. But they were connected. They were one. They didn't have individuality. And therefore, they weren't really experiencing connection. Then they were split apart. They felt disconnected and alone in order to come back together to becoming one. That they can now experience the closeness of that connection. In Hegel, in philosophical terms, Hegel put this as thesis, 
antithesis, synthesis. You have the thesis, the initial idea. Then you have the opposite idea, the oneness. Disconnection is the opposite. And then synthesis is the coming together of those two ideas. This concept repeats itself again and again in Kabbalah. Right, that we have an energy, then we have the opposite of energy, and then we have the synthesis of those two energies coming together. So, so let's let's continue. All right. Oh, so in Kabbalah, how do you express? How do we express um, male in Kabbalah on the body? Male and female are represented in different parts of the body. Uh, for those of you who are coming to my Monday, my Sunday afternoon Rage Level 2 class, Jesse, not Jaylene, um, then you are going to learn about a major theme in Judaism, which is right and left. That The right side in Kabbalah always represents masculine. The left side represents feminine. The right side represents the energy of chesed, which is kindness and compassion. The left side represents strength and self-control, which is considered feminine. The reason for that, we've talked about many times, everyone always guesses the opposite. They think female or female energy is going to be kindness and male energy is going to be strength, but it's actually the opposite in Kabbalah because the male is the giver in the procreation process. He gives the seed, the female receives that seed. That's the giving is kindness, the receiving is strength in Kabbalah. Strength is the act of bringing in towards yourself. Jewish strength is self-control. Okay, so the male energy is always external. Male or men in general, and we're not talking about men and women, but in, in general, men are more masculine in general. Men are more focused on externals, on physicality. Women are more internally oriented. They're more focused on emotions, on connection. So it's a very different orientation. Kindness is all about the other. It's extroverted. And strength is all about the inner, introverted. So those are the two different energies. Don't get too caught up in male and female right now, but um, we will get into it in a second. So the right hand represents, or the right arm represents kindness. The left arm represents strength. How would I show on the body the coming together of masculine and feminine as one? Right arm strength, masculine, left arm feminine. How do I depict physically on the body, the two coming together. The two hands coming together, right? But that's actually not correct. You would think that. I would think that. I always did think that, but it's not correct. It's not the two hands coming together. It's actually the torso. Represents what's called teferis, which is the harmony or balance of the two. Why? Because the goal of marriage is not that the two become one. It's not an intermixing of and loss of your identity. It's that the two, the man continues to do the man, be man, the female continues to be female. They continue to have their unique identities, doing their own things in the world, using their talents, not losing themselves, but coming from the same base, building the same source. That's the idea of marriage is that the two are working together for the same goals, but as individuals. So to come together as one doesn't mean to lose your identity. It means to use your identity for the common good. Okay. Again, we could talk about that more another time. I think we have. So, so according to Kabbalah, Avraham 
is the quintessential chesed personality. Avraham's life is all about doing kindness. His whole life mission is to, he has a tent that's open on all four sides. He's out there giving, he has a soup kitchen. He's giving to people 24-7. He doesn't differentiate between anyone. He wants to save Sodom. It's a terrible town. He wants to save it. He loves everyone. He's like the quintessential loving personality. Okay, His whole life, he's called the Ivri in Russian and in Hebrew. An Ivri is someone who crosses over. It means to go over. It means someone from over there because Avram is constantly crossing over borders and boundaries. He's the Chesed personality passing through, constantly moving around and, and expanding himself. That's Avraham. Avraham has to marry what kind of energy? Vora, opposites attract. Sarah is strength. Sarah is literally putting boundaries on her husband. She says, this son's in, that son's out. She's basically telling her, she can tell her husband what to do. And the Torah says, whatever Sarah says, you got to listen to her. Because Sarah has a higher level of prophecy than Avraham. Sarah represents strength. Loving personality and extroverted personality is attracted to a introverted personality in order to create balance. So Sarah represents Gavura, strength. So, yes, there are ways to figure out what your personality type is. I have a friend who wrote a book on it. It's called The Seven Types. And there are actually seven different personality types, according to Kabbalah. And really, those seven each interact with each other. So there are really 49 different personality types. I'm not an expert. I could try. But my friend wrote a book called The Seven Types. You can look it up on Amazon. His name is Ian Bailey. Ian Bailey. Very Irish name. Actually Jewish. He's a friend of mine. He's a therapist. And he lives in Baltimore. I'm sure it's already discounted. But... Uh, I can introduce you. You could ask him. So we actually, uh, we work in the same therapy clinic. So, um, so Yitzchak, the Torah tells us Yitzchak is from the side of Gevura. Yitzchak, so much so that according to the Zohar, according to Kabbalah, Yitzchak has a female soul. Now, last year when we had this discussion, we talked about transgender and male males being born with female souls and vice versa. We're not going to get into that now. Right now, we're going to discuss it just in the simple sense, which is that he has a soul from the side of the feminine, which is Gevura. And Yitzchak is so Gevura that he never leaves the land of Israel. He's not allowed to leave the land of Israel because he lives within borders. As opposed to Avram, who's chesed, who's constantly expanding beyond sense himself, Yitzchak is complete self-control, never leaves the land of Israel. And the Orachayim, the famous Moroccan Kabbalist, explains on the Torah that why did Yitzchak only get married after the sacrifice that took place, the binding of Yitzchak? Only after that story does, is Rivka born. The Torah tells us suddenly Rivka is born. Says the Orachayim, because Yitzchak had a female soul, he was not able to get married. It was impossible for him to get married because he was he was internally female and opposites attract. So the binding of Yitzchak represents the literally the pulling down of the strength of Yitzchak. Avram had to control himself, and, and there's much more to say on this. But Avram's test was literally in the opposite. 
Avram had to become Yitzchak and Yitzchak had to become Avram. They each had to be tested in the opposite energy. So Avram has to do an act of strength, of sacrificing his son. Yitzchak has to do an act of complete giving up of himself. So it's literally the opposite because in order to in order to reach balance, we have to be tested in the opposite direction. So, so Yitz, in that moment of binding, the Kabbalah teaches that Yitzchak's soul literally left him and he got a new soul. The new soul, which is still from the side of Gevurah, wasn't as much on the feminine side. And now he's able to get married. At that very moment, his soulmate is born, Rivka. So how does Eliezer know that Rivka is the right one? He makes this crazy deal with God. Now, don't try that at home. Don't be like, God, I'm going to go out. And any the first guy I see that asks me what time it is, that's the one. Don't do that. But, but he says, the first girl I see that says, when I ask her, can I have a drink? She says, sure. And not only will I give you the drink, but I'm also going to feed all your camels. Why? Because this, yeah, say it. Chesed, this girl who, she embodies kindness. She embodies chesed. She's the one for Yitzchak. She's the opposite of his soul. And he says, and now I see that Hashem did chesed, ve'emes, kindness and truth. Truth represents the third energy in Kabbalah. We have chesed, kindness, gevura, strength, and then we have something called teferis, which is the torso, the balance, the coming together of strength and kindness, which represents harmony, and it also represents emis, truth, because truth is the balance between extremes. That's the goal. And it also represents Torah, because the goal of Torah is to come to balance. So now we can come back to the anti-romantic story of marriage taking place with money, which we learn from buying a burial cave. So the name of the cave is the Maris Hamakpela. The word Makpela is actually the root of an English word. The word Makpela comes from the Hebrew word Kefal. Now, the word, the letter fe is interchangeable with the letter pay. So what does kaful mean in English? Ka, ke, kuf, pay, lamed. K, P, L. Put some vowels in there. K, P, L. I'll give you a hint. In Hebrew, it means double. Couple. The word couple, kafel, means couple. Makpela literally means the, the couple's cave. That's what it is. What couples? So the town is called Curious Arba, the neighborhood of the four. Rashi says, because of the four couples who are buried there. Who are the four couples? Avram and Sarah. Yitzchak and Rivka. Isaac and Rebekah. Yaakov and Leah. Jacob and Leah. And, according to tradition, Adam and Eve. The first couple. Is, 
It's a long story. So literally, it is the, the couple's cave in the city of Hebron. The word Hebron literally means connection. A chaver, what's a chavrusa? Chavruta is a is a friend. A chaver is a friend. Literally, the town of friendships, which really comes to the word chibor, which means connection. That is literally what this cave represents. And all the aspects of marriage that we learn is all connected. Because when you marry someone, the man has to give to the female. That represents chesed, giving, female receiving. It has to be done with a marriage contract where the man commits to take care and to give to his wife. Wife has no obligation to give to the husband. Then they go under the chuppah, which represents the surrounding and coming together as one. And the act of actual intimacy is the, literally the most coming together as oneness that's possible in the physical world between two people. So literally, the reason we learn the marriage laws from the burying of a burial cave is because marriage is not just in this world. It is eternal. It lasts beyond the grave. Because when you're married to your soulmate, that marriage is eternal. Your souls will be together forever. Just as in life, so too beyond life. And finally, the body coming together of male and female represents the body and soul coming together, as we said, spirituality coming into physicality. And that's why we learn the first time the buying of land in Israel has to do with buying a place to bury Sarah. Because the, according to the Zohar, Sarah represents the body and Avram represents the soul. And the land of Israel, Mother Earth, is female. Because that represents the complete vessel that receives the spirituality from Hashem and then reveals and then gives back. The redemption from Egypt is in the merit of the righteous women, the Talmud explains. And bringing the soul into the world comes about through the, through the female, which is able to take the light of the soul and then bring it out through birth. Avram swears on the bris because the bris is literally the, the exemplification of this process of spirituality coming into, into physicality. And the marriage is created with a ring, which represents the circle of life, that the bond lasts forever, forever. So just as you were one before you came into this world, so too you will be one forever. This, town, this, this Torah portion is called the life of Sarah because... In Judaism, we don't believe in life after death. We believe in life after life. Death is an illusion. Death is just a transition from one state of being into another. But the soul, which is alive, stays alive forever. And that is the life of Sarah because she lives on through her descendants. When a person does an act of kindness or a mitzvah in the memory of a loved one, their loved one lives on through them. Not only do you bring their legacy with you forever, but they literally live with you and are elevated through you forever. But even more so, the soul lives on and is never dies. 
something that is alive can never die. The soul has no connection to death. Death is something that takes place only in the physical world. And finally, last point, it says that righteous people elevate their, their, their bodies to such a degree that their bodies become spiritual. Their actually bodies become spiritual. And that's why we pray at the grave of a righteous person because the, the body actually becomes soul. And that's why the Orachim explains this place is called Hebron, which means connection, because Avram and Sarah elevated their bodies to such a level that they literally created a connector between heaven and earth. And that's what this place represents, is a place where the prayers have to go through, is through the cave where Avram and Sarah are buried in order to go up to the next world. It's an intermediary between this world and the next. So that, my friends, is my two cents for today. Sorry we, we went over a little. Mike, I'll see you in shul in a few minutes. Um, questions? Comments? Wishing you all a beautiful, beautiful Shabbos and a beautiful life of connection and intimacy and growth. You should all be blessed to find your other half very, very soon and invite me to the wedding.